Hey, it's Ronnie Davis, and you're listening to Being More, the place to be if you want to learn how to stop eating in ways that make you feel like crap, if you want to end the weight and food war, and start reimagining healthy eating and living. We'll show you how to change your mind, your food world, and your life with less doing and more being. Okay, hello, welcome, welcome. I'm Hi, excited. Ronnie. Hello, Mercy. I'm excited today to have you joining me for everybody joining us. I have the fabulous Mercy Brockman joining me for the podcast today. Mercy is a highly educated, multi-passionate woman using the knowledge from her own experience of being raised with a significant amount of emotional trauma from her mother's opiate addiction and bipolarity, Marcy learned to survive and heal herself through journaling, therapy, meditation, and creative arts. Marcy is an author, podcaster, artist, and has been a high school English teacher for 27 years. Journal writing and the creation of art are really what saved her and became the basis of her two books, Permission to Land, Searching for Love, Home, and Belonging, and Permission to Land, personal transformation through writing. Her artwork is available for viewing and purchase on her website, mercybrockman.com. In November, 2020, she began her highly lauded podcast, Permission to Heal, which is available on all major podcast listening platforms and YouTube. She's been a contributing writer for Elephant Journal, Fairy God Boss, Thrive Global, and Medium, and she's been featured on Idea Mensch and in Authority Magazine. All of this is a direct outgrowth of Marcy's concept of giving ourselves permission to be our authentic selves, to be relentlessly self-compassionate, to focus on our dreams and to heal ourselves and build the rich, abundant life we deserve. And I'm gonna pause right there because this is why I was drawn to Marcy and her work. Permission, permission, permission. Anybody that's followed me for a while knows that permission is a big key in my work as well. Permission to eat what we want, permission to be relentlessly self-compassionate as well. So Marcy, thank you so much for joining me. As I said, I love your work and thank everything you. you do. So I'm excited that you're here. I'm thrilled to be here. This is wonderful. Yeah, we've already had one chat off off yeah. the record, off the off the recording, and it was wonderful. So I'm anticipating the same today. And I thought Absolutely. we'd kind of start maybe with just diving into how did the book and the podcast come about? Where did because you've got your your fingers in a lot of different things. Where did that all start? How did you get into all of that? Um. Uh, okay, let's tell the story as cleanly as possible. It's um, it took very many years to get to the point where where I was ready to share these things. So I, as you said in the intro, um, I was an only child. Um, my mom had an opiate addiction and was um, um, an undiagnosed self-medicated bipolar. So she just, you know, she was in and out of therapy and doctors threw medication at her. And long story short, it was torturous growing up with her and I was an only child so I was the only one who was facing it my dad worked like 99 jobs and was never around and um I I grew up being a people pleaser I grew up sublimating all own thoughts and feelings not feeling like I was lovable or I was worthy of having all the things that I wanted because I all you know I kept it a secret mm -hmm. um because my my 
MO, my drive in life was to do everything that I could to keep my mother happy, to try to, you know, skirt around the issues that I thought would be difficult for her, or I was trying to make myself safe, Mm -hmm. trying to make myself feel better. I didn't know that that's what I was doing at the time, of course, but, um, and, and I, so I grew up knowing, having that as my, uh, my um, relationship template, I should say, so that I didn't allow the real Marcy to ever step forward and was always trying to make myself into what I thought someone else wanted so that I could be loved and connected and feel a sense of belonging Mm. and safety. Yeah. So, you know, years go by in and out of a toxic marriage. My ex-husband was pretty much the male version of my mom. So Mm. that didn't work out well. We had two kids parenting with a narcissist wasn't so fun but you know we all got through it the kids are grown up and out on their own so that goes um my mom died uh, of her addiction the physical manifestations of her addiction in october of 2013 and uh i started um i was really trying to figure out how to make peace with it you know i had a lot of leftover issues a lot of leftover grief that was just unresolved and I didn't sort of know how to go about doing it and I had been in therapy and I've been journaling since 1983 and doing you know drawing and painting and creative art since I was a little girl and all of that really helped me process what I was thinking and feeling and and get it out of my head at least you know so somehow I got it in my head in January of 2015 that I needed to share some of my stories with the world. So I started writing articles for Elephant Journal, Mm -hmm. which is an online magazine, community-based. You can publish whatever you want on there and and it stays on like the community side. And if their editors think that the writing is good enough or the story is good enough, they move it over to the magazine side. So anybody could publish under there their heading. So I had um, a piece move over to the magazine side in January of 2015. And it was all about choosing your people, it was called choosing your people wisely. Um, And it was all about really being sure of who you were allowing in your life, you know, giving yourself permission to create boundaries and to keep whatever toxicity, whatever unhealthy relationships outside of your life you don't you don't have to let everybody in and and somehow in in that piece I wrote that at that time I felt like I was an airplane endlessly circling an airport waiting for permission to land like Mm -hmm. I was viewing myself outside of my own life outside of my own body and I I couldn't sort of figure out how to feel like I had both feet on the earth, that I had my whole self grounded in my own life. I I was looking for permission to be me Mm -hmm. from outside sources because I had always found that or thought I found that from outside sources. And it wasn't until January of 2015 that I realized how screwed up that was. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And so permission at that point became a very big thing. So I did a lot, I did a lot of writing for them. Um, I got remarried 
and I finally found love and I finally mm -hmm. found extended family that I wanted and his kids and my kids all got along and I mean it was just it was perfect and mm -hmm. and Michael and I really have been friends since 1987 so we saw each other through both of our first toxic marriages we saw mm -hmm. all of our kids grew up we became you know we were excuse me friends for 30 years mm -hmm. and so when we we got involved romantically it was very quick and like we knew from the beginning that this is what we both wanted anyway so so now fast forward and it's the summer of 2019 and I started itching to write a memoir to tell my story the story of my relationship with my mom and all of it and um, so I, I signed up for a writing course with Elephant Journal because I needed an audience to share things with um, in pieces. And so it was a little writing group kind of thing. Anyway, so between October of 2019 and December of 2019, I wrote hundreds of thousands of words. <laughs> and the whole book just sort of like brain dumped out of my head. And uh, I had a, a novelist friend of mine was the editor and we published it. I self-published it in the summer of 2020 in the middle of lockdown. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, while going on podcasts and talking about the story and trying to promote the book, I started crystallizing that there was something else. There was another piece of this, another step in the path. And I loved being to being able to talk about all of these lessons that I've learned mm -hmm. to actually physically talking to people yeah. in this capacity. But I, I sort of felt like it needed to be wider somehow and I didn't sort of know how. Anyway, so um, I'm a teacher. So I was teaching and it was the fall of 2020. So school had gone back in person but it was like this hybrid crazy thing where like half the students were virtual for part of the days and for some of the days of the week and and some of the kids were live in the classroom masked and behind screens it was craziness and then the other half of the week they switched anyway so i had a professor from a local college uh giving a talk virtually through zoom or google meet actually in my classroom and his his name was chuck garcia and he had his own podcast called Climb to the Top. And he's a professor of, I don't even know what, some sort of economic thing. And the name of his podcast, I mean, the name of his presentation was The Art of the Podcast. Ooh. And I thought my students were going to totally love this. Not one single student out of the 50 students who listened to this was the slightest bit interested. But within seconds of this guy talking, I, I felt a metaphoric lightning bolt hit me <laughs> in the head. And I'm like, this is for me. Yeah. This, the universe brought this for me, not my students. Oh, because I got goosebumps. As, <laughs> as he was talking about the equipment that you need and the message and the mission, and I'm like, oh my God, I have all of that. I had bought all of this recording equipment when I was doing the recording the audio book for, for my memoir. So I had it all. I knew how to do it. I had the programs, the software in my computer. I'm like, what? Why? Why? What? Why am I waiting? <laughs> Holy crap! I could start a podcast. And so I chatted with him um, on the phone, like for maybe 20 minutes that day after we had finished the the, the 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 presentation. And he's like, Yeah, go for it. Why not? You've got it all. Just just do it. So 
you know, I'm quick. When I get an idea, yeah. I like dive into it. So within six days after that, Permission to Heal was born. Amazing. I mean, it was literally just totally organic. I I was trying to figure out what to call it. And my husband's like, what are you, an idiot? You're going to call it Permission something. Yeah, permission yeah. To, you know, it's just what you're about. So so that's, that's the story of that. <laughs> oh, I love it. And so it's a health, mental health and wellness podcast. Um, we dropped 70, episode 78 this week, I think. So it's mostly once a week. Um, there have been a few times like when I had COVID or I had the flu that I had to skip, you know, mm -hmm. I'm a one woman show. So I do everything myself. And uh, so if life gets in the way, life gets in the way. But, you know. But that's it. That's fun. And I'm learning each each episode. I meet new friends. I meet mm -hmm. new uh, mentors. I, I learn. It's like a therapy session for me and everyone else, you know, and I, mm. I'm sharing it all. And then in the process of all of it, I decided that the next step is to be a therapist myself. So um, I retire from teaching in six or seven years. And I just this June started um, a program, another master's degree in clinical mental health counseling. And I'm almost done with my first two classes and I'm excited. That's so amazing. I love that so much. I love that cool. so, so much. We need more. It's a totally <laughs> organic process. I didn't yeah. go set out to do any of this except initially to just write a few articles and then mm. it just snowballed in a good way. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, very much the same for me. I actually started writing a book around 2019, maybe 2018. Um, I wrote one years ago about my daughter and her health issues and stuff. And so 2018, I think maybe I started writing another one just about, you know, my my own experience mm -hmm. and, and the things I've learned too. It's hard. Yeah. Writing a book is really, really hard. And for me, it was the first sort of chapter kind of wrote itself and then it it's i kind of was like i don't know where i want to go with this it's not the right time yet right so mine's still on the back burner but um when it's the right time you'll know exactly exactly you know? and and so you know i say that because it's it's hard to like it's not an easy thing to do to write a book and the fact that you did it in, in such a short period of time well, is rather the, it was just the first draft was between october and december <laughs> Excuse and me. I and there were times where I would write for 20 minutes and there were other times where I would sit and I was so in the groove with my noise canceling headphones on that yeah, I would write for nine hours. And yeah. my husband would just like walk around me in the house, you know. Um, and then Craig Lancaster, who's a, a novelist friend of mine who said that he would be my editor. Um, I, I, you know, he was the first person to read the whole draft in its entirety. And when I emailed it to him, I kind of held my breath for two weeks until I got the thing back from him. And he had a lot of suggestions. Mm -hmm. But the first thing he said was, congratulations, you wrote a book. And I was yeah. like, oh, my God, I'm not an idiot. This is fine. <laughs> this is good. This is going to be all right. And and the second draft was really the hardest part. Yeah. Because I had done all of the superficial brain dump stuff. And, and at certain, at many points, he said that he needed more, that the mm. audience would need more, they would need more context, they would need, so I had to like, cave in on myself almost mm. to, to remember exactly what all of the sensory images were from mm. these particular painful, sometimes painful scenes, mm. so that I could paint 
a picture, like a movie scene, and bring the reader into it. There's a lot. There's so much catharsis in that, though. Oh my God! It was not the most cathartic thing I've ever for, done in my life. Yeah, not just for you, but for the audience, right? Because when they're mm. in it, they're they're seeing themselves and their own experiences in it in many ways too, right? right. Um, and so they're getting something from it, but you as well. Yeah, and it's not it's not yeah. a self help book. Like I didn't yeah. come out and say to anybody you know, this is what I did, so this is what you should do. Here are the five points that you can learn out of this. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it wasn't anything like that. It's it's the story of my life through the lens of my toxic relationship with my mother, which wasn't always toxic, yeah. you know? Like, people aren't black and white protagonists or antagonists like mm -hmm. they are in literature. Yeah. And it, you know, she was a loving, generous beautiful person mm -hmm. she was creative she volunteered she had a lot of friends but there was a side to her that well it, it really was the you know bipolarity is what they used to call manic depressive mm -hmm. so she, when she was in her manic stage everyone loved her she was yeah. charismatic and fun and creative and bubbly and 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 when she was in her depressive stage she was a shell yeah you know, she'd hide in her bed in the dark watching TV, eating Doritos and Diet Coke. Like, she just didn't move. Mm. Uh, and if I needed something as her only child, and I knew she loved me, I never questioned that. But if I needed anything mm. during one of her down, dark periods, I was sort of screwed. Yeah. You know, I used to call it when I before when I was a kid and I didn't know I didn't have the vocabulary to describe what was going on. I said that she was either Mary Poppins or Cruella DeVille. Mm. And and when she was Cruella DeVille, you know, screw the world, you know. Yeah. There was nothing that I was going to yeah, do. And between that and the and what the the Jewish guilt that I had been <laughs> raised with from, <laughs> you know, several generations of Jewish grandmothers and Jewish great aunts and so on, you know, there were times where she would say something to me like like let's say there's just one specific incident where i remember i wanted to go to my best friend melissa's house and she was having a little gathering and i wanted to sleep over her house and my mom's response was do what you want do whatever you want mm. and i perceived that as a guilt statement mm. if you go you ungrateful bitch you can go but i'm gonna be mad when you get back that's the mm. way i took it so i didn't go and I wrote about it extensively in my journal. I was really upset. And how could I let, you know, and Ona, she was going to ignore me. And what did it even matter? She wasn't, she, she wasn't paying attention to me anyway. It's not like we were hanging out or she felt like she, she wouldn't known whether I was there or not. Mm -hmm. Years later, when I was talking to the Mary Poppins side of my mom, when I was a grown up and it no longer mattered, really, she said all those times that she said, just go do what you want. She literally meant, it doesn't matter, I don't care. Not in a, I don't care what you do, go screw yourself, but mm -hmm. I'm too busy with this. Yeah. Go take care of yourself, go do what you need to do. Like, no guilt, just go. Yeah. And she she herself sort of never understood why I didn't go after yeah. she said those things, but was so involved in her own psych, psychic, psyche, mm -hmm. yeah, psyche, that she didn't say anything to me. Yeah. So it's this huge multi-layers of misunderstandings and, you know, human relationships are complicated. They're so complicated and icky sometimes, oh but it's, it's fascinating to me because, you know, that seems like sort of a relatively 
benign kind of scenario, right? And right. and and yet it was something that deeply affected you and stuck with you for so many years. And and you had told yourself all of these stories around what it meant that your mom said this thing. And what fascinates me about that is like, I can relate to that so much in my own life because, you know, as I was working on healing some of my own, own crap, my, my father was an alcoholic who was never, yes, who was never diagnosed, but I'm convinced he was also massively depressed, like clinical chronic depression. There's a reason you drink that the the alcoholism is a symptom. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I, and so I get a lot of that, but, um, you know, it's, it's, I came out of that childhood experience living with an alcoholic thinking, you know, like, okay, I'm out of it now. Like, I know that that was a terrible time in my life, but I'm out of it now. Like it probably messed me up in some ways, but I really don't think so. I don't, I don't know how it's in my past. I don't want to think about it anymore. I had no idea how deep it went and how much it affected me, but also, you know, like that's something that you kind of think, okay, maybe that's going to have an impact. Maybe having a mother with some mental illness is going to have some of, somewhat of an impact. You expect sort of bigger things like that to have an impact. Right. It's the little things that you well, don't the realize. That are the, are the, 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 the little things that are the behavioral practices, mm. I guess, of the bigger thing. So she yeah. was mentally ill, she had a drug issue. And, and that comes out in the little moments. And yeah. so many, many, many of those little moments taught me that I wasn't allowed to have what I wanted. Yeah. And that what she wanted was of primus, primal importance and nothing else counted. And keeping them happy. Right, exactly. Keeping, keeping mom happy. happy, in my case, keeping dad happy. Yeah. Right, meant that I could be safe. Yeah. You know, I mean, I had, there were many moments where I, when my, before my parents split up, when I was a little kid, that uh, they would be yelling and screaming and my mom used to throw things and she, you know, punched mm-hmm. holes in walls. I mean, it was not pretty. Yeah. Uh, I, I have very clear memories of hiding in my closet with a teddy bear and a pillow, yeah. you know, sliding the closet door closed and just trying to keep myself safe. Yeah. Um, and, and that metaphoric closing myself in a closet was happening well into my 40s. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. It happened many times literally in my first marriage where and I I didn't realize this until many years later but where I would feel like you know very unsafe and unstable in this marriage and and it was in my own home I'm a grown-up mom of two and I was still hiding in my closet yeah maybe not with a teddy bear and a pillow crouched on the floor but i'd walk we had walking dual uh, his and hers walk-in closets in the master bedroom and I would walk into mine and close the door I, I was, when I was little, I would lay in bed because my father wasn't just an alcoholic. He was an abusive alcoholic who beat the hell out of my mom on a regular basis. Oh, shit. Sorry. And so oh I would, God. yeah. And so, you know, I would lay in bed at night hearing what's going on with my, like my hearing my father doing this to my mother, hearing her crying and begging to stop and whatever. Oh, no. And I would lay there motionless, paralyzed with fear, terrified to move because I was terrified that if I even so much as breathed, he would hear me and then come to me. So being seen and and moving even was potentially life-threatening. It was dangerous. It made me feel unsafe. And so then, you know, years later, I get diagnosed with depression. And in my case, my depression would leave me feeling paralyzed on my couch 
right? I, I would, I couldn't move. I, I'd be laying there and I would have to pee and I'd be like, Ronnie, just get up and go to the bathroom. And I couldn't right. make myself get off the couch. Right. And then, um, you know, as I was kind of processing and learning to figure all of that out and whatnot, I, I thought to myself at one day, like I remember thinking, okay, so when in my childhood did I feel paralyzed? Because I thought there has to be some connection. Absolutely. And instantly when I asked myself that question, I flashed back to that little girl in the bed mm-hmm. who was terrified to move. And I, I, that was a memory that I always had, but I never knew how much it impacted me until I became an adult. And, and I recognized, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. That's what I lived with. Like we don't, you know, we can have these memories, but, and, and live with the effects of them, but not understand what the effects of them were of course, until of we course. start. Every you know, single adult in. relationship, not so much friendships, but every single adult romantic relationship I had from college on yeah. was, was colored by all of these experiences with my mm-hmm. mom. You know, I, I was always a people pleaser with everyone mm-hmm. trying to prove, trying to mold myself yeah. and prove that I was worthy of their love. Even if it was a stranger, some random guy I meet at a party in college. I don't know who the hell he is. I don't know what he wants, yeah. but I would give over all of me yeah. to try to make that stranger, that young boy care about me. I don't yeah. even know if I liked him. Yeah, you just know, so all... desperate for love yourself, that that just desperate for love and affection yourself. Right, yeah. right. I started, it's yeah, like when I- Kenny Rogers song, you know, looking for love in all the wrong places, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I, w- <laughs> yeah. when I was a little girl, I used to save my lunch money to at Christmas time to try to buy my aunts and uncles Christmas presents. And I, I would Aww. walk into the store with pennies from my lunch. That's so sweet. And, and try to find the perfect present that they would love so that they would love me right same thing i started really young when i started doing it um yeah but that's what happens when you don't get that feeling of safety that feeling of love and connection and that feeling of being seen and and what did we learn we learned that the only person on the planet who can give us that feeling is ourselves eventually we learned eventually that. oh yeah eventually like i learned this like four years ago you know maybe oh, yeah me too maybe i've been married five years maybe seven years ago sitting at this very drafting table in this very this is my art studio but i made the pretty background for the podcast but Beautiful. the rest of the room is bloody chaos but i i sat here painting for myself you yeah. know for hours and hours and hours and hours and i and and it help me process art therapy is an amazing thing it helped me process that learn patience yeah learn that um i could do what i set out to do Mm -hmm. if only i gave myself the patience and time to learn how to do it um and somehow it came to me that the only person who had any right to affect any change in my life or was me yeah. And the only person who was capable of affecting change in my life was me. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the rest of it sort of came to me in an epiphany on a date with a guy that I had met online. So I'll, I'll tell the story really short. So 
I was on like every dating website. I was single for 10 years, didn't want to be single anymore. And I was sitting across the table at this really nice restaurant with some guy. I don't know who he is. It doesn't matter. He's not really part of the story, except that I was sitting there trying to figure out what he wanted in a, in a, in a girlfriend. Who do I need to be so that he'll like me? Exactly. But I don't know him. Yeah. So how am I supposed to know who he wants? And then anything that I, anything that I put on, like, like, you know, any characteristics that I put on, like, like a a jacket or whatever, are not really going to be me. Yeah. So if he's in a relationship with the woman I'm pretending to be, then he's in a relationship with a fictional character and I Mm -hmm. don't exist at all. Yeah. So it sent me back to the drawing board. I remember when I was in my mid-20s, my stepmother said that she wanted me to write a a list. I didn't have to share it with her, but she wanted me to write a list of all of the characteristics that I wanted in a boyfriend or a husband or a life partner or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then from that list also create a subset list of deal breakers, things Mm -hmm. that I could not live without. So these are all the things that I want, but these are the things that I can't live without. And so I was in my journal. So I went back and I dug through, I was in my forties, but I went back to the list that I had made in my twenties and refined it. Cause what I wanted was different. Yeah. You know, things change in 20 years here. Like, mm-hmm. And, um, and so I made this list. And so the next date I went out on, I had the list on my phone and I was just experimenting, you know, and I handed my phone to the guy and I said, okay, this is my list. How many of these things can you check off? Yeah. And he's like, well, I can do this and I do this and blah, 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 blah. And he went down the list and, and it was a point between those two dates that I realized that the only way that I was going to find what I wanted on that list was if I was 100% unabashedly me. Yeah. And then it didn't matter if the guy across from me liked me. It didn't matter if he wanted me in his life. He didn't matter if he wanted a second date or he thought he'd married me or he never wanted to see me again. None of that mattered. It only mattered how I felt in that situation. Did I like him? Did I like the me I could be and feel mm-hmm. safe being with that guy? That was the only thing that mattered. If he liked me at that point, that was a bonus. But I came in empty-handed, and if I left empty-handed, as long as I had the authentic me with me the whole time, I was a winner. That takes so much courage. It takes it so much courage to do that. Yeah, I yeah, I came out of um, I came to that realization that that it, it was me that that needed that I needed the love from the most from the binging. The binging is what did it for me because it, I started recognizing that every time I was binging, it felt like I was there was an enormous hole in my chest that I kept trying to fill. And I, I started trying to figure out what that hole was. And I recognized that it was the place where I kept abandoning myself. Where I wasn't loving myself, I was abandoning myself, and I was I was abandoning myself because I wasn't loving myself, and I was chasing love from everywhere and everywhere, everyone, and I did it through my bot what my body looked like, because I didn't think I had anything else to offer, so I had to you know get this perfect body so that I could make everybody you know be impressed by me and think I was so amazing and inspirational, 
And I started recognizing that, you know, well, like, wait a second, the only person whose opinion needs to matter is my own. The only person who I need to love me is me. Right. And if I can find a way to love myself enough, then I don't need to chase validation from everybody else. I don't exactly. need to try to pretend to be somebody that I'm not. Mm -hmm. um, and I can, I can give myself what I need. And then I, then, you know, you come into that realization going, okay, holy shit, I've been playing this role for so many years. How the hell do I even know who I actually am? Like exactly. who, who was under the role? And I, I knew who I thought I was, right? Cause we tell ourselves all kinds of stories about who we are, who we think we are, right. but you know, you kind of have to spend that time to figure out the difference between who I think I am versus who I actually am. And so that was an enormous amount of courage. Yeah, to do that. absolutely. And I still, you know, my, my, my mom always said really horrible things about her body mm -hmm. and was always um, trying to find, I mean, she was 5'10", like, I don't know if you know the, the old time actress Rosalind Russell, but my mom was built mm -hmm. like her very curvaceous total hourglass figure but a larger sized woman yeah um and she was always like a, a, didn't like her arm fat mm -hmm. and she didn't like you know there were things about her body she did she didn't do any exercise whatsoever i tried to get her into stuff i bought her yoga mats and all sorts of things she wasn't interested in any of it okay fine and as i'm aging mm -hmm. my body is really turning into what my mom's looked like yeah except I'm not 5'10 I'm 5'6 so it's more compact I'm curvier than my mother was and especially since my hysterectomy three years ago my hormones have completely mm -hmm. changed I don't have ovaries anymore so there's no estrogen I know my adrenal system is completely like overloaded and I'm I'm working with a doctor and having blood work done and checking thyroid and all of the medical crap. Mm -hmm. But what I do know is that what I learned from my mom was not to exercise. So, mm -hmm. you know, I do a Pilates class, but most of the time I cancel. That's my own thing. And I have to figure out my own relationship with food. Yeah. You know, when, when I was getting my divorce, it seemed like my eating and my body were the only thing that I could control. Mm -hmm. And... I put myself on a very rigid calorie maximum every day and yeah. I exercised as much as possible and I was calculating to the single digit calories in and calories out um, and I made myself throw up a few times because mm. I was unhappy with how many calories I had eaten yeah. and and I, I have very clear memories of myself in my old marital residence before the divorce was through sticking my fingers down my throat and I had two very small children at the time yeah. and I had this out-of-body experience where I saw myself in the bathroom doing this and I'm like you're gonna have bulimia you need to stop this you have two little kids this is not what you want to teach them this is not healthy mm. stop it and so I stopped it it was hard I went to mm. my therapist about it and I was upset and I'll, you know but but I stopped it and, and I, you know, I, I forced myself, if you're going to eat whatever it is that you're eating, you need to live with that full feeling and realize that you don't like that and not do that again. But you mm -hmm. can't, you can't throw it up. You know, that's terrible for your mm -hmm. body. And, and so that was just a short little piece. 
but I had lost like 60 pounds in seven months and I was I was doing Pilates on my own Matt Pilates in my bedroom every single day I, I looked amazing mm -hmm. <laughs> but I was 38 looked fabulous from the outside but I was a mess because it was like this horrible divorce and I hadn't gone through any of the epiphanies yet but now like I'm much more mentally healthy and my I have abandoned my body yeah so as we do you know like there are as so much do. of my so many times I imagine that my brain is using my body as a car you know that my body is only a locomotion mechanism for my brain that's exactly what happens there's a um... There's a Zen, Zen or Buddhist short story that talks about um, it, it's it, it's a, a a rider going galloping down the road on a horse, and somebody somebody sees him, you know, fly by on the horse and says, "Hey, where are you going?" and and the guy yells, "I don't know. Ask the horse," because it's a runaway <laughs> horse. <laughs> right. right. And I, I often awesome. think of it very much like that. Our brain just kind of runs away with the body, right? And ends up making right. all of the choices for us and, and all of that based on our conditioning and our past and our patterns and all of that kind of stuff. And it's it's very much like that. Our brain just kind of takes off and, and we're like on the runaway horse, helpless to, you know, just kind of along for the ride, helpless to kind of find any kind of direction. That's certainly how I felt, absolutely for sure. Um, but you know, it's interesting. 50, it's been difficult. Yeah. You know? But you know, but... it's, it's interesting because so often we we're taught to feel like, you know, losing the weight and, and, you know, sort of obsessing over what's going, how much is going in or what's going in and getting the exercise every day. We're, we're really conditioned to, to feel like that's doing the right things and showing up for our bodies and, and, and it kind of reinforces it when we start feeling better when we do those things. But I can tell you that, you know, when I, when I was kind of in that world and doing all of that, you know, stuff every day, it was some of the most obsessive times of my life. Mm -hmm. And it was some That's of the most either. dysfunctional and unhealthy times in my life. And it was some of the times in my life when I was most abandoning my body because I was doing all of the things that I thought I should be doing in order to get the weight loss, in order to change what my body looked like, in order to get those external results that I wanted, instead of being connected to my body and allowing my body to tell me what I needed every day. Right. And so sure, it, it might have felt better. Sometimes it didn't always feel better because I was over-exercising like crazy. <laughs> but it, it, it's, not, it's not necessarily always that that's when we're showing up for ourselves. No, I, I, a couple of years ago, actually before my hysterectomy, so I was, I had all of these awful symptoms mm. um, and I, I decided that I was going to go join, I don't want to like shame a corporation, so I won't mention them, but I was going to join a, a gym, a national chain gym that had mm -hmm. this, you know, circuit training kind yeah. of like, um, um, what do they call that? You change intensities. Um, anyway, whatever. So their coaches were minimum wage yeah. people who liked being in the health industry, but I don't yeah. really think that they were trained as coaches. They mm. didn't really know anything. And so I'm running on the treadmill and I'm 
and they're they're like, come on, you can do yeah. it, you can do it, you're gonna get in the red zone. Nah, nah, nah. And I'm watching my heart rate on this monitor, and I'm like, I'm gonna die. My, my heart's gonna my, explode on the wall. My, my heart rate's going up. I'm sweating. I'm like anxious. I'm asthmatic. Yeah. So now I'm like wheezing, and my heart is running away, and I'm crying, yeah. and I, and I'm like, what about this is healthy? Mm. This is not good for me. Yeah. This is freaking dangerous. I'm going to collapse on this treadmill. So I quit. I'm I embarrassed quit. to tell you how many years it took me to figure that out. <laughs> it was a few months. And I was like, you know, part of me was, I got through the workout today without crying. That shouldn't be a goal. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Some of my most up. proud moments were the workouts I had that I actually made myself puke. And I would be cripple for days all the time. Like my body hurt all the time. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I think there's a disconnect that we often find there between the behaviors that we think are healthy and, and that we should be doing versus what I now kind of view. Well, it's that whole um, diet and, and, and exercise yeah. industry is toxic. It's so, you know? so, so, so very toxic. And I say that as somebody who was in it for eight years. It's so, so toxic. Yeah. At my worst, you know, you, you talked about being in the bathroom and throwing up. And I can remember at my worst, um, I, I could never make myself throw up. I was bulimic, but my compensatory behaviors were um, over-exercise and starvation. But it wasn't because I didn't try to make myself throw up. So I'd be in the bathroom with a spoon down my throat, trying to make myself throw up. Oh my God. And I could have never, I could never do it. And I'd be bawling, not because of the situation, but because I couldn't throw up. And I remember going into my therapist's office one week after the, fir the first time, after the first time I had tried it. And I was sobbing to him saying to him, I'm such a failure at life. I can't even do bulimia right. And I heard the words Bloody. come out of my mouth and I kind of laughed because you know when you say something that's just, you know that it's ridiculous? Right. Makes and sense I kind of laughed at myself. And then you hear it and you're like, what preposterous bullshit is this? <laughs> yeah, I was like, wow, that's ridiculous. Oh my God, I'm so screwed up. <laughs> <laughs> nice. There's the benchmark for you. I'm so screwed up. I can't even screw up right. 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 Ugh. Yeah. And that's when I was at the height of my, you know, I, I was lean and I was fit and I was being celebrated and everybody's, you know, um, and I, like you, I, I had a mother who also, you know, picked at the body image all the time, except my mother was the one that exercised and I never liked it growing up. And I like, I was an no. indoor kid. I, I mean, I, we were outside playing a lot too, but I liked being inside. I liked reading. I liked being creative and mm -hmm. I would be called lazy. And she'd, you know, go off to her aerobics classes. And my mother used to write her weight on her calendar every day. And it would be in our bathroom to this day. Oh. Well, I haven't seen my mom in a couple of years because of COVID and stuff. So maybe it's gone now. <laughs> but the, to this day, the last time I was, I saw my mom, the calendar was still in her bathroom with her weight. And she'd put like the time that she weighed and she'd weigh herself a number of times a day. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. In the, in the six months with the, toward the end of my divorce, when I was doing that, that's what I was doing. I'd weigh yeah. myself in the morning after I pooped yep. so that I would be the lowest weight. Possible. <laughs> yeah. And throughout the day, I would weigh myself again and see if the weight had gone up. And I had expected a little fluctuation as I was eating and drinking and so on. 
but every single morning I would weigh myself at exactly the same kind of time in my yeah. day. And, and, and if the weight didn't go down every day, I was mad at myself. Yeah. You know, and, and, and there was there. no sense of how quickly was to lose weight was safe. And that if I nope. went, went down too fast. Because it didn't matter. It didn't matter. I was like, I lost 25 pounds in a month. Woo! I'm yeah. Like, my body was in shock. My emotional system, my nervous system was in shock. So, you know, at, at that point, I was just happy for some measure of control. Yeah. You know, and then some I- Some measure of control and so some feeling weight. of success. Right. And I had lost so much weight so quickly that I had coworkers saying, you know, my collarbones were sticking out. And they're like, mm. maybe you should slow down. Maybe you should stop. Mm. You've lost too much weight. You're too skinny. Mm. And and I was excited that someone yeah. said that I was too skinny. <gasps> oh my God, you know. Yeah, I I'm had... so amazing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Meanwhile, they have no idea how fucked up I am in my head, you know. Yeah. Like, they have no idea. But, you know, now we're, it's a process, you know. Yeah. We have to... And now, it's funny. I, I'm, I'm on summer vacation and I'm listening. Mm. Yes, I'm not going to the Pilates class I signed up for. Okay, fine. But I'm listening to my body. And I'm sleeping mm. when my body needs to sleep. And I'm eating what my body wants me to eat. I've stopped okay. eating the things that I know make me sick. And I have stopped. I haven't weighed myself in six weeks. And Amazing. I put the scale away and I don't care. Amazing. Yes, I'm not happy with the way my body looks. Yeah. But I'm trying to figure out what of that is unrealistic self-deprecating ageism yeah. from the media and the patriarchy and all that other bullshit and what of that is realistic you know like mm -hmm. I can't expect to look and feel physically like I did when I was 34 because yeah. I'm 54 yeah what what is 54 post hysterectomy post-menopausal supposed to feel like and look like I don't know yeah well you know it, it's interesting because I don't like the way my body looks anymore either. But having said that, I am more content with my body today than I have ever been in my, I stood on stage winning trophies. I had abs. Wow. And I am more content with my body today with the rolls and the flabby arms and all of that than I have ever been in my entire life. Because what I've learned is that it doesn't matter one fucking iota what my body looks like. Mm -hmm. The only thing that matters is how it feels to live in, right. how connected I am to it and how much I'm honoring it, mm -hmm. and how I feel about it, how much gratitude I carry for it. And it doesn't matter one bit what it looks like. So I can stand in the mirror and I can recognize that, yeah, I don't have the shoulders I had. I don't have the abs anymore. I've got some rolls now. And I know I don't like them as much as I liked the look of the abs. Sure. But this feels so yeah. much better. Yeah. I had a conversation with a woman the other day who's 56. So she's two years older than I am. Gorgeous. Mm. does not look her age she's got the body of a model she just looks amazing and in the course of this conversation I find out that she has a heart condition mm. that she had um, a mitral valve problem and had um, surgery that mm. left her sort of paralyzed on her right side mm. for a while and she's had all these physical issues and all this good and I'm like 
okay, so I'm heavier than she is, and I've got rolls, but my heart's fine, and I can move all my limbs, and I don't have any physical ailments, and I don't have cancer, and I don't have, like, I'm ticking off all these really important things. Yeah, the things that matter. <laughs> the things that matter. So if all of the major organ systems are functioning well, does it matter that I've got a little extra around my tummy? No one mm. gives a shit. My husband mm. still loves me, still wants to have sex with me. I'm good. Exactly, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> and that's such a great point too, because I, I actually did a podcast episode on, about this um, a while back that I called um, what I learned about being the picture of health. Because so often we get this idea of what healthy is supposed to look like or what it does look like. And we judge ourselves based on that. Like, you know, when I had the abs and the shoulders and the, and, and, you know, the defined back and everything, that's what most people associate with looking like healthy. Like you described this woman, like this is what we view as being healthy just because we're so conditioned to, you know, now that I've got some roles and I don't have the definition anymore and you know, all of that, it, we kind of judge things based on what we see, but it's so wrong <laughs> like it's so there's there's right. no basis in reality because it doesn't matter what your body looks like what it weighs how fit you are you can have health issues at, at any size or any shape or any you know whatever and i i again i realized that just by getting there because my body was in way worse shape back then than it is now like in terms of how it felt sure right um and yeah so i think you know, we focus way too much on looks, especially as we get older. Mm -hmm. Like I've noticed myself um, just even the, the last probably year or even six months, it feels like weekly almost, I notice things in my body that are starting to change. Like I, my skin, I notice is starting to bruise really easily. Oh yeah. And it's, it's looking like thinner and kind of getting a little like crepey kind of looking, you know what I mean? And so like, there's all of these changes happening that I, I am so grateful that I've done so much work on my body image until now because I, I would have been freaking out before. <laughs> and yes. it's all just normal parts of aging. Exactly. exactly. That we get and so we conditioned to hate ourselves society. for. Yeah. yeah. And so we, we end up feeling- Exactly. And so we end up, you know, kind of hating and judging ourselves for these things that are completely and totally normal. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And so that's, that's certainly a constant practice for sure. Yeah. And, and it's normal to, I think, waffle, you know, there are some days where I feel really confident and con content and settled and, and mm -hmm. other days or even other hours where I feel mm -hmm. like, eh, you know, I feel a little more, um, self-conscious or self-deprecating mm -hmm. or you know however you want to phrase that and and I and I think that that it's all it's all a process you know yeah yeah it so is I, I feel like we could I could sit here and talk to you forever like all afternoon but I, I don't want to take up your, your entire afternoon I know you're a busy well, I lady I know you're a busy busy lady with a lot going on um too, actually what <laughs> a new concept as the teacher as the one who's assigning the work and grading to do it's interesting to now be on the other side of that and actually have homework and studying to do i, I bet like it, it is yeah it's i fun. bet it is if i could afford it i'd go to school all the time so, oh my goodness not me i, I mean really i, I like love to learn but, but like the, the school like this the school um environment is i i'm, I'm not a fan but i do love well to it's learn. online you know i don't actually oh, physically nice. go anywhere 
the whole program is online. I have two weeks of in-person uh, stuff to do in New Hampshire with where the school is at Southern New Hampshire University. And uh, so in September, I've got like five days where I have to be in Nashua and like mm. in person with everyone. But otherwise, it's online and it's asynchronous. So Amazing. I can do it at two o'clock in the morning in bed in my nightgown. So, Amazing. you know, can't beat that. No, you know, I'm doing research on my own and the professors are available via email if I need and I have questions. So it's awesome. I'm having a good time. So, you know, we talked about, um, you know, finding ourselves and being authentic and, and all of that kind of stuff. What makes you feel the most inspired or the most authentic in that, in, in you? Like what makes you feel most authentically you? Is there something that you do or that you? Um, when I can use the things that I've learned to help mm. other people is when I feel like I am living my truest self. So that comes out in moments like this with you. Mm -hmm. This comes out when I'm having conversations, random conversations with my children. Um, it comes out when I have students, when I'm teaching my students, I absolutely adore being a teacher. But also when students come to me to talk about what's really bothering them on, in their private lives and they're coming to me for advice or just to listen to them because I become school mom for a lot of kids. And and that's really what convinced me to become a therapist was mm. because it was in those moments where I could use all of my empathy and my compassion and all the things that I learned in my own life to help guide someone else to learning about themselves. Um, I think that's when I feel the most in my, in my purpose. Yeah. I'm, I feel the exact same way. And it's, it's when I feel my most confident too, because I don't always feel very confident in myself. Yeah. And I'm the same way when I, when I feel like I'm using what the struggles that I've learned and the things that I've learned from those struggles, when I feel like exactly. I'm using my experience to help others, I, I feel I feel the same way. That's when I feel my most me. And that's when I feel my most in in where I'm supposed to be doing what I'm doing. I love that. And I think I think that's the purpose here. Right. I, I just do. I, I just think that's all of our purpose here to just live and learn and then share. Yeah, I, I mean, that's being so beautiful. a human is difficult. Yes. And so we have to, I, I think we have to help each other yeah. live this life and yeah. be the best that we can be mm. and the happiest and the most content that we can be throughout this life, helping each other find internal and external peace. Oh, yeah. You know? I love that. And I think that's everything. And if we could get rid of the greed for money and power and things, which I think is going to be the downfall of humanity. Don't even get me started. We could talk for another hour about that. Yeah. <laughs> I think greed is it. It's, you know, it's going to destroy we us. Have... Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And it's going to make our planet inhabitable and, yep. and take away our freedom to do what we need to do in our lives. And it's yep. totally totally screwed up <laughs> yeah it's it's going to be our downfall as a race as a as a people as a as a species <laughs> yeah absolutely um 
So I know that you had some things you wanted to share. You've got some lessons that you've learned from your, from all of the podcasts that you've done so far. Hopefully when I get on yours, we'll, I'll, I'll add to that list a little bit, but we'll, uh, I'd love to hear what you have so far. If you wanted to share that, would you mind? Sure. So in 78 episodes, I, I compiled this list after the 70, 70th or 75th episode dropped. I made a list of seven because I was doing seven, yeah. um, seven lessons that I'd learned from my guests. So the first one was self-care, things, do what brings you peace and joy. Yes. So I think that that's uh, yes. the number one thing that I've learned. Amen you know, to that makes you happy to do yoga do it if it doesn't make Absolutely. you happy to do yoga don't if it makes you happy to have ice cream eat your damn ice cream yes. you know like be happy we yes. you know my grandmother used to say you know god willing i'll see you tomorrow i could get hit by a bus you know <laughs> but it's true yeah it sounds ridiculous but it's true you don't know how much time time is the one re one non-renewable resource that we have mm. so you don't, not to live fatalistically, you have to plan for tomorrow, but if you really- Well, you have to plan for tomorrow, but Sunday, you don't have to be scared of tomorrow. Right, exactly. Yeah. Eat that ice cream sundae if you want it, you know? Yeah. Sleep the extra hour if you want it. Get up early and go see the sunrise. Like whatever brings you joy. Yes. Um, number yes, two yes. is drinking water and getting enough sleep are imperative for everyone. Mm. Yep. Hydration and rest. Your yes, and I would add- Without them. Yes, and I would add, if you listen to your body, they'll tell you how much water and rest you need. It will tell you how much exactly. water and rest you need. Yeah, exactly. I love it. Yeah, I set alarms this morning to get up and I pushed snooze for two hours. Yeah, and screw the alarm, let your body get up. If you don't have I... to get up. No, as long as I got up in time for this conversation, it was fine. <laughs> You're good. <laughs> it was fine. Exactly. I was up drawing and painting until three in the morning and then I was reading until four. So I oh, wasn't yes. getting up early. But it's just where my body is. My sweet yeah. spot for sleeping during the summer is I go to sleep somewhere between 2 and 4 a.m. And then I wake up somewhere between 10 and 12, you wow. know, noon. And that's my sweet spot. That's where my body is happy. So I'm... during the school year, when I get up at 5 a.m., it's 27 years of torture. So I, it's funny how I grimaced when you set up at 5 a.m., but I'm, I'm up at 5 a.m., so I don't know why I grimaced. I guess it was just a reflex. But I'm typically in bed around eight or so. I may read for a little while and fall asleep around nine usually. And then I'm up at about five. Again, wow. naturally, that's what my body likes. Right. And we're all different, which is beautiful. And that's okay. Yeah. Luckily, I married a night person. You know, if I married a oh, morning person. Oh, good for you. Yeah. It's <laughs> screwed up. Ever see each other. <laughs> no, it would be bad. It would be bad. Um, Love it. Okay, so number three was if I could read my own handwriting, finding your path to healing and closure, whether from trauma or grief, won't happen magically. Yeah. You have to be brave and dig deep into vulnerability. Dig deep into vulnerability, dig deep into pain. Yeah. And yeah. nobody is coming to do it for you. Nobody. Guides nobody. can help. They can be supportive, right? But nobody's coming to do it for you. And ignoring things, like I ignored a whole bunch of stuff over the years that I didn't think really mattered. You know, and my metaphor is that I, I took that thing, that pain, and I shoved it in the corner of my bedroom under the... That's, that's the metaphor I have. Um, but no matter what you do, it's going to be there waiting for you. And if yeah. you don't deal with it, it's going to manifest itself as something else. Well, yeah, and I didn't shove or... it... 
Yeah, and yeah. I didn't shove it in the corner of my room. I shoved it down in my body with food. Right. <laughs> and it, it does, it manifests. It, 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 you know, the more you stuff, the more it grows and it manifests in all of these other things like a weight, the weight and the food obsession. It manifests into that and uh, chronic, chronic pain. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly. how mine shows up. Right. <laughs> exactly. It manifests in all kinds of ways. Yeah. Love I it. can't even allow myself peanut M&Ms now. Unless I buy only the little single serving that you get at the 7-Eleven or something. Oh, you know? girl, we got to talk about this. Because if I buy the big family bag for a party or something, I'll eat the whole thing myself. Like, I know I'm like, I don't want to say like an alcoholic, but and minimize that. But I know I have a problem with peanut M&Ms and I will allow myself an appropriate serving and then I cut myself off because I could eat the whole bag. And then. So one of the things that causes that though is restriction around food. So if you're cutting yourself off from the things, that's one of the things that causes it. Like having a history of dieting where we have these bad foods mm -hmm. causes us to view these foods as something that we shouldn't eat. And we get all of these restrictive rules around them. And it creates those cravings and those feelings of being out of control around food. That's one of the reasons why my work starts with permission to eat what you want and even permission to binge. So I but anybody have a bowl Sorry. of peanut M&Ms on the table so that I get over the restriction yes, of it? Yes, but there's a very strategic way to do it. And anybody that's listened to my podcast for any length of time has already heard me talk about this a million times. And I also don't want to override your episode with- No, 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 it's fine. I'm learning something. Tell me, tell me. Oh, good. Okay. so. So one of the biggest reasons why we binge and feel out of control around food is by trying to restrict the food that we love, is by trying to restrict those things. And so okay. allowing yourself to eat as much of it as you want is terrifying, like paralyzingly scary, but it's also the key to shifting that, or at least one of the keys, it's the beginning key. So huh. permission to binge on the thing or in general or whatever, permission to eat whatever we want helps to rewire that restriction that we create around food. So, because what happens is when you decide I, I can only have this many of them, the brain freaks out and goes, oh my God, but that's not enough. I'm gonna starve to death if I don't have all of these M&Ms. And that's what causes the cravings. And so that's what causes all of the obsessive thoughts around the things and the cravings and feeling like I can't stop them. That's what's making your brain go, just one more, just one more. And then before you know it, you're at the end of the bag because your brain is terrified you're gonna to starve to death if you don't eat them all. And so we have to give ourselves permission to eat whatever we want and as much as we want in order to help rewire that restriction, that pattern that's caused by that restriction. Again, though, there's a very strategic way to do it because we don't wanna just do, you know, eat whatever we want. We wanna do it in a strategic way. And so typically what happens when we, and, and you know, I've been there because I, I I felt like I was addicted to sugar and food myself for, for the better part of my addict, my adult life. I, I, I would eat so much sugar that I would go to bed feeling like I was going to die in my sleep. Like it was bad. I could not stop. And so when I, first of all, when I recognized that restriction was a big part of it, I, I had to take the restriction off. And so I allowed myself to, to, to binge on the sugar, to do whatever I wanted to do. But the difference, the way, the way that I did it differently, because before what would happen is I would try to be good. I would try to not eat them, or I would try to only eat a certain amount and that may work for a while. But then what would happen is eventually there'd be a rebound and I would eventually overeat all of them, or I would constantly be thinking about them and wanting to eat more. 
and I'd be scared to have them around because I didn't trust myself with them. Right. right? It's not healthy to I'm go through life scared of food. Right? No, I'm just scared of so, the nymphs. Exactly. <laughs> it sounds ridiculous to say out loud. Yeah. yeah. And, and, I, and I was scared of food. If it had sugar in it, if it was a carbohydrate, if it was processed, I was terrified of it. And eventually I was like, it's not healthy to go through life scared of food. No, and so, and also, yeah. And also again, trying to restrict, first of all, wasn't helping me not overeat them. Sometimes it would, but not always. I'd always end up, you know, going over the edge eventually. And also, um, so it wasn't helping me not overeat them, but also it was keeping me scared of the food. And it was, cre- it was, it was contributing to that overeating of the things and, and the, the obsessions. And so, Okay, I gotta take those off. But what would happen is I would try so hard not to eat them. Try, 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 try. And then I couldn't hold on anymore. So then I would cave. And that's like, typically that's what happens when we feel like we're giving ourselves permission to eat the things, right? Because a lot of times I'll say like permission to eat what you want and people will say, no, like that's what got me into this mess. But it's not, it's the fact that you've been trying to restrict it and you, you know, right. it's like so holding on to the side of a the building emotion around it becomes a positive thing instead of a negative thing. Yeah. It's like, hold, you're trying to hold on to the side of a building for so long and eventually your fingers give out and you cave. That's not giving yourself permission to eat the thing. That's just not being able to willpower your way to, to controlling your intake anymore. Right. Right. The other thing that typically happens when we do that is we promise ourselves after we've done it, that we're not going to do it again. From now on, we're going to be good with the M&Ms. We're not going to eat that many ever again. We're going to be good. Tomorrow we're going to be. And so we go right back into restrictive mode, mm-hmm. which keeps the pattern going. So we took the restrictions off. I allowed myself to binge. I allowed myself to eat all of the whatevers I wanted as much as I wanted. And yes, in the beginning, the binging continued, the overeating of the things continued, but it was happening anyway, right? Like right. I, I couldn't stop it anyway. But what I also did- to temper it? Well, what happened was I stopped promising myself that I would never do it again. So like when it would happen, I wouldn't do that anymore where I was tomorrow, I'm going to be good. No, no. If I binge again tomorrow, I binge again tomorrow. Like if, if I want to eat 10 pounds of peanut M&Ms every single day from now until the end of my life, I can do that. I'm allowed because I'm a grown up and I can do that. Cool. Right. Okay. So I don't have to worry about them being something special that I can't control myself around because I can eat as much of it as I want. Mm-hmm. I can binge all day, every day if I want to. And typically when I say that, people are like, oh my God, that sounds terrible. I don't want to do that. And I say, exactly. You don't want to do that. It's patterns in your brain that drive some of those behaviors. When you allow yourself to do it, that pattern begins to get shifted. So I allow myself to do it. And then also, in addition to that, after I've done it, I don't crap on myself for it or I catch myself when I do because in the beginning you still do for a while and so I remind myself that it's allowed that I'm not a terrible person I'm not a pig I'm not addicted I'm not you know like so I stop that negative internal dialogue because that's another thing that fuels the the compulsive eating we self-punish with food when we feel like we're bad so it continues to fuel the the obsessive eating or whatever it is with with the with the particular food And the other thing that I do is before I eat the thing, I ask myself, I pause and I ask myself a series of questions. Okay. And so that helps to, it it helps to put space between the the trigger and the response. It helps to put some, some mindful, conscious intention behind the choice that we're about to make. So 
What do I want? Why do I want it? How is it going to make me feel if I eat it? Do I want to feel that way? Why or why not? Right. And so it was a process that took a very long time. <laughs> it took a lot of practice and a very long time. But I'm at the point now where most of the things that I used to binge on, I haven't even eaten in probably years because I don't care about them anymore. Like it, it right. changes the way your brain operates and approaches food. And so the peanut M&Ms or, or for me, in my case, Jujubees was, was one of my big ones. They don't okay. have that power over me anymore. Right. Because you're not doing that restriction. Makes sense. And it's, it's scary because it sounds like the opposite of what we should be doing. Everybody's always like, but it's addictive and you have to, you know, cut it out or at least moderation. But all of those things I learned were a big part of what drove me feeling like I was addicted. And, you know, clients come into my work and they, they all say the same thing. Like it, it's the scariest choice, the scariest thing to do, because it feels so opposite of what we're supposed to do, but they, they experience the same shifts. Like one of the, my the clients- questions that you ask yourself are really the key point. Well, the, the, the pausing, the questions- the consciousness of it. Yeah, the pausing before, um, also paying attention to how your body feels after you've eaten the thing. And I don't mean like the shame and the guilt. I mean, how does my body physically respond when I eat that thing? And so then you have that information when you ask yourself the next time you're about to eat it. And so right. when you take away the restriction and you take away the self-punishment, the self-punishing thoughts and self-criticisms and all of that for eating the bad thing, then you've got a chance for those patterns to start to shift and for the, the things to not control you anymore. Yeah. One of my clients this morning on, on the call was talking about how this shift has helped her. And, and she said, like, I'm actually craving vegetables. I was like, I know who thought it could be possible. <laughs> but, but yeah. that's what happens when you, you know, when you start changing that pattern around the food, it's not, it's not the food itself. And it's not that we don't have self-control with the food. It's just the pattern that we develop around the food and 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 the the power we give it really right because of all of the rules that we develop around them um yeah so sorry i got off on a little tangent there no i i learned a whole lot i'm gonna oh, good. it's reshaped my thought process just oh good this conversation oh good yay excellent so carry on with your list. <laughs> okay, um, so that was number four. Number five, jumping into a dream and learning along the way is a great way to achieve your goals. Yes. So don't wait till you're ready. Yes. Just jump in. You know, if I waited till I was ready to publish a book, I still wouldn't have done it. If I yes. waited to start the podcast, I wouldn't, you know, I learned along the way. I didn't know what yeah. the hell I was doing. My first interview, I white knuckled my way through and... You know, it is what it is. You learn along uh, along along the way as you go. Yeah, because the um, longer you put it off, the the more time fear has to build, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Love Number it. Number six is joy, peace, and happy birthright. Say that again. You cut out for a second, and I um, want to make sure everyone hears it. Joy, peace, and happiness are your birthright. Yes. Period. Yeah. Full stop. That's it. That's it. You That's don't it. have to earn it. You don't have to nope. do anything. You don't have to have them be malleable and bend yourself mm. into different directions to earn it you you have a right to that just by the sheer force of your existence yes i love it yes and number seven was you only need your own permission to do anything you desire yes that's the overriding everything you know yes 
Again, period, full stop. Yes. Oh, they're so good. I love them all. Thanks. So I just want to finish up. Holy cow, we've talked for so long. <laughs> Thank long you for your time. I so appreciate it. This has been it. fun. I'm, I'm I know. having a good time. Me too. I'm having a good time. So I want to, I do want to leave, leave one question. I have one more question. Um, sure. I've changed the title of this podcast this season to being more. And so my okay. final question for you would be, if you could give somebody the advice to be more of one thing or two things, we can cheat. <laughs> what would it be? What do we need to be more of in your view? I think we need to be more open-minded mm -hmm. and we need to be more compassionate, yeah. not only towards others, but towards ourselves. I think that the one of the biggest problems, besides the greed we talked about before, that we have with ourselves, with our families, with our communities, with our country, with our culture, is that we have lost the ability to hear each other mm. and respect our differences. So I, I, I think that that would go a long way towards healing all of us, mm -hmm. you know, and limit the divisiveness that yeah. we feel and the anger that we feel and the fear that guides all of it, you know? Yeah. So that's my answer. Yeah. I love that. So good. Oh, this has been a delight. This I hope you'll join me again soon. Yes. Yes. And you're going to be on my podcast next week or the week after. I don't know. I don't remember. I actually, I, yeah, I actually think it's sometime next month. Um, my schedule the next couple of weeks was a little, was a little, so I, I think it's, and your schedule is, is, has, was busy too on your, on your schedule. So I think it's in a couple of weeks, but soon. Yes. We'll, soon. Join, we'll join each other again soon. Um, thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. This has been great. You've been listening to Being More with Ronnie Davis. Thanks for tuning in. To learn more about embodied cognitive eating training and access free resources, visit www.ecet.online.